It's Saturday morning. You have no work, but you're still up early. Everything is quiet around. Slow. And you're not really awake yet either. Put the coffee on. It's the perfect time to read some poetry. This morning we have a guest, John Horn, joining us from Cork. We have mentioned Cork many times on the podcast because of the Ovale connection and uh, we have read books from poets featured there as well. Good morning, John. Hi, Blazan. Hi, Elisa. How are you all doing? Hey. All good. None of us likes waking up early, so this is perfect. Let's uh, find a, a structure that works. What, what are we reading first? Are you asking for the official ideas? Okay. I am, <laughs> I am asking you for a game plan. Official idea we read less known poem for a well-known poet. In a book that we own, isn't it? Yeah, or whatever. I actually forgot this part when I was doing my poetry homework and research. <laughs> so <laughs> we could actually... <laughs> so we're just, we're just reading a poem we haven't read before. No, a poem we read before. A poem we have read before. Yes. Although we could go to the second part, which is a poem we haven't read before. Yeah, no, from actually, a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's do that. Let's do that. Um, I was told that the first thing was we were reading a book or we get a book of poetry from our house and then we read a random poem from it that we hadn't read. So that's kind yes, of... Yes, that's the one. Like, that's, that's the a first reading of a poem you haven't read before. That's... Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I misunderstood what, the way you were saying it there. Okay. Let's do that. Who should start? Guest first or guest last? What do you think? Guest last and, and build up my confidence or something. Guest last. Yeah, we can do that. I can start. Yeah. I will read from Poetry Magazine, June 2019. A collection I haven't opened once after buying. So... I just, I just don't want to pick something that's very long. They tend to do that. Let's do... Megan Denton Ray, Traveling Broke and Ugly. That's a nice title. My husband doesn't believe me that the dogs barked nightly at the spirit in the corner of the kitchen, that I knew of a family whose quilts were flung against the wall mid-sleep. Once I told him I, made, I met Satan in Scandinavia, and she had pigtails and a machete sticky with spiderwort. She couldn't have been older than six or seven. Her ancestors were Vikings. They boiled fire starters in urine, and when she approached me, she laughed and called me ugly three times. 
Stig, 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 with the same gurgle of the growling dogs, with a film over her eyes bubbled back into her head. Then she giggled and ran away. Later in the hotel room, I anointed my for forehead with oil, right thumb tracing the sign of the cross, howling in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Propulsion and smelt speak until the crows fell off. God blessed river, God mothering gift. I threaded three needles with my mouth and cast them out behind me, Amen. Whose ghost sent a child peeling a mango with her teeth? They say when a spirit leaves a room, you'll feel a sudden cal calmness, or maybe you'll feel cold, a kiss on your cheek. I felt hot and full of brisket. No, I felt a web of algae stuck to my face, electroshock and thundering stacked spoons. I saw the face of Christ looking up at me, and she had pigtails. I curled inside the musket's mouth, a rust warm, a ramshackle, spiritual aftertaste. A penny always on my tongue. Hmm. It's interesting. It's unusual subject matter, isn't it? It is interesting. The traveling seems to be, you know, the, the last trip, all these uh, different religious uh, themes and Towards the end, it seems like it's talking about death. I hadn't thought that. <laughs> I hadn't caught the traveling thing, but I definitely caught Satan. She saw Satan as a child and then mm. saw Christ as a child with pigtails as well. Yes. So she's yes. she's in some sort of visionary state of mind or, or a very superstitious state of mind. Yeah. What I find also interesting is the... A uh, tendency of uh, contemporary poetry, I think, to use a you a lot. Uh, I and you. Yes. And was the you the wife or us? It's a bit. Um, uh, I really mean, wife. it starts with my husband. Um, oh, the husband, sorry. Well, the yeah, other person. I told him. Uh, I don't. I don't think this poem had a you. It did. I don't remember. Oh, no, it's maybe the bit where it says, they say when the spirit leaves a room, you'll feel a sudden calmness. No, 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 before. Before. Well, I mean, maybe I'm... Uh, there is no you before it. <laughs> well, it's hard when you hear a poem just once and... You can't reread it, or you know, it can be hard to take it all in very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, something stayed with you, uh, but uh, would you? Are you kind of like noticing that older poems, the ones you mostly read, don't have use? They focus more on what a third mm. person. I don't know, I was thinking, I guess, about the poems that we read the last time, uh, mm. like Saiken and um, um, the one with the, from the ex-fascist or something. Um, <laughs> there were a, oh, few, yeah. uh, a few... Yeah, Frank, Frank Sherlock, yeah. A lot of views and uh, personal 
dresses, and I swear, I I, I think I heard it. <laughs> Don't know. Um, huh. Yeah, it seems like distinctly a certain time. I am personally personally partial to poems with uh, an emphasis on the second person. I've always liked those, you know, more for for some reason. When you're talking about yourself, but you say you instead, as in you feel this, and, and uh, you know, I kind of like that. It's informal and it's the way people talk. And yeah, yeah, I feel it lets you in more. And when you're writing one, I often, I often go back and forth between you and I. Maybe because I don't like using I too much because it just sounds like I'm being self-absorbed and narcissistic or something. Whereas if I write you, it's more relatable, you know. Uh, I I get that. What is interesting that now it has become like a self-check mechanism is that I I understand what you what you mean because I have the same thing. But at some point. Um, when I was talking about, you know, like you talk about how you feel about certain things and you use the second person for that relatability. Mm -hmm. And I was doing it in therapy and my therapist says, no, I, I feel this. So it has become, after he did it a few times, it became like a self-check mechanism. Mm -hmm. So then when I caught myself using the second person to express how I'm feeling, I kind of reverse it and go, no, I feel this. Um, <laughs> and th that kind of applies to every every other aspect. I don't mean to criticize your uh, therapist, but seeing you can give you a slight emotional distance from your own feelings, which I suppose can be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, maybe he didn't. He didn't want me to do that. Maybe, Perhaps, he, maybe. he wanted you to own it. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Suffer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about this poem. It's interesting. Also because she met Satan in Scandinavia and her ancestors were Vikings. So she's all these kind of religious, cultural things are getting intertwined in this dreamlike you know, like she's telling this story that her husband doesn't believe. Were you saying there's something about traveling in it? The title is Traveling Broken Ugly. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't pick and that. The last, line, the last line is, a penny always on my tongue. And it reminds me of uh, coins on the eyes of the dead. That was a Roman thing, but maybe in the Vikings they did it in their tongue. The poem kind of has Vikings and... Uh, uh, you know, Christian God, you know, the name of the Father, the Son of the Holy yeah. Ghost, and uh, uh, the devil. I, If she put in some Greco-Roman culture in there, I wouldn't be surprised. But I'm saying, uh, as you said, that the Romans put it on the eyes, but yes. may maybe the Vikings put it on the tongue instead. You know? Maybe, yeah. maybe. I, I'm not sure I've read anything about this. I hadn't heard of it before on the tongue. But I, I don't know, it gave me that sense of... Uh, yeah, you're paying off the... Always on the time, yeah. It's for the... It's for the fucking guy with the boat and to bring you across the river, Six, the ferryman. 
to yes. be in. Yeah. That's that's the one. There's a song in Ireland by Krista Borg. Do you remember Krista Borg? The Lady in Red. Ah, oh yeah. Before he kind of got into that cheese stuff, he used to do sort of mythical kind of songs. And one was called Don't Pay the Ferryman. Oh yeah, 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 that's a famous. Now you remember that song, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I may remember it too. Okay. You, your, your turn, you can, whether you're going to read us from that, uh, that poetry book you, you got, right? Yes. So I wanted, uh, John, I wanted Platon to read this last week, but he couldn't see it properly and I couldn't take a proper picture of it, so I'm going to read it. And it's from the Quarrymen, which is the UCC uh, poetry and prose publication <laughs> yearly for students and staff. And I... Um, yeah, this is from 2019, the one I have, and I'm gonna read something from Fiona Murphy. And can I ask, are these poems by students or are they like established poets? Uh, student and staff, all UCC people, so yeah, teachers or... I think even ex-students, maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe just students. Um, but I... Oh, let's see. I remember Fiona Murphy. Um, from Avail, actually, I think. The name sounds a bit familiar. I don't know exactly who she is, but her name sounds familiar. Yeah. She's very good. And there's a... Bunch of other people that we know, actually. Um, but onto the poem. So this is called The Banks of the Lee. Come with me and we will go to that quiet spot on Western Road where the pavement dips and time slips as the glass elevators of the River Lee Hotel rise like shining gods, like shooting stars, like the bubbles of our laughter sword that floated that then burst among the rafters raining rhymes down upon our heads on our bench in the corner of the long valley bar we mouthed poetry our eyes mouthed words we left unsaid our hands entwine and combine the lingering cold of a Murphy's and a Bulmer's as we wander church aisles Saluting Shandon Salmon and St. Finbar's Stoic Seraph. This city of poetry in accents so harsh can make words as cutting as the broken glass embedded in the pathway of Tobin Lane or as lyrical as the Lee, the city's veins. That was that. I I think I've read this before. I'm pretty sure I've read this before. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Have you read it before? Me? Yes. I actually hadn't, <laughs> but I saw the title and I was like, oh, card-based poem. Let's be nostalgic. Um, but When was this, was this first published on this publication? I doubt it. Okay. 
because I feel like I've read it before this one came out. Yeah, and um, you can see it, but it's written like the how it looks on the page is really cool. Like the the words have got these long spacings in between them, so the poem is like all over the page, which is also something oh. that attracted me to it. This is the the cork episode. <laughs> This is the yeah. spiritual home of the podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes. Does the tight get larger and smaller on the page? Because I kind of hate when that happens. Do you know the way some people make some lines mm. huge? Mm. I find it very distracting. I've never seen that. Well, I, I see it more on the internet than in printed yeah. things, you know. Oh, maybe, yeah. I mean, why not? If you can play with it. Um... Although, yeah, the reading experience can be... Yeah, it takes me out of the poem and I'm just denied. <laughs> Interesting. Do you feel that way about other formal elements on the page as well? or? No, I, I just like the text to be all the same size. I'm totally cool if you go over the page and then back. And I kind of like yeah. if you have a kind of zigzag design or something. Yeah, it's yeah. just when one line... Well, I'm just particularly thinking of one poet I used to read, a medium, which is where I published my own poetry. She'd have a line on the left and then a massive line on the right and then back down to a small line on the left. And it, it was... Yeah. Bit, it, was, it just came across as kind of very tabloid and sort of trying to sensationalise and just grab mm. your attention, but it just put me off more than anything. Now, uh, we... Uh, on the first episode, we mentioned these kind of formal elements because we realized that some of the poems we were reading played around with the words on the page, but when you read them out loud, not necessarily on the podcast, performing them, whatever, uh, that gets completely lost. So we were talking about like, how much do you miss out on? Um, but, and I mentioned this uh, poet who has uh, a poem called I Had a Dream About You and he describes various dreams um, but within that poem he has some real things that he wants to say to this you uh, that the, the I Had a Dream About You mm -hmm. and all the, the the things that he describes that are purely uh, dreams are on the right side and the real uh, things that have happened are on the left side and what he wants to say is centered Okay. and he has a whole thesis about how the left margin is the is reality and the right margin is the dream world so he plays around very well with this once like in this uh, instance where he set the rules for what the placing of the lines are on the page then it works especially if you know it mm -hmm. you know i just read uh, i heard this on, on an interview that he, he gave and i had read that poem many times but then he said this and it i read the poem again and it kind of had the sort it had more in it now mm -hmm. that i knew this element but i understand also the approach of I'm just gonna do this according to my own rules and even if you don't know the rules you you will kind of um, instinctively pick up on some things I, I think that's a brilliant idea I would say though I, if, if I was doing something like that I'd put a note in 
so people knew what I was doing. Do you you know? would, yeah. Because yeah. you get a lot more from it if you realize what he's doing. Do you know? Yeah, I, like I said, I agree with that. I, he, he, did, he didn't. Uh, sometimes, you know, artists just leave it to the audience to kind of pick up or not pick up on it. Um, but yeah, and I think that when when poets just do it for the fun of it, it doesn't really work mm. as well. Yeah. And it does get, like like you say, kind of distracting and... Though if you think about the title, I had a dream about you, so the three elements are all in the title. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. you wouldn't think exactly. it, it's only once you know it though, that you realize that, you know? Yeah, for, for me it was, although... You know, it's one of those things that you can't unknow, so I couldn't yeah. tell you now how I read the poem before I knew mm. this, so it's one of those things. I love the poem regardless. You must check it out. What's the name of the poet again? Uh, Richard Seiken. It's, on, it's online. You can find the full poem online from some university press. I forget which one now. Anyway. I'll try and find it because I, I really like the sound of the format. Yeah. Yeah, give it a go. Probably my favorite poem still. Mm. We've forgotten to talk about this poem, though. I just like that it listed lots of things in Cork that I know, like Western Road and Shandon, and that's just pandering to me, you know, because <laughs> it's like you, you like seeing your own city or locations yeah. from your own life appear in some kind of art, you know? Yeah. It doesn't have to be good art, and it doesn't... It only makes the art better for the people that actually know those places, you know, it doesn't... Yeah, just referencing things, yeah, you know, yeah. makes it feel familiar. Yeah, and I guess if you're from a place that isn't kind of a hub like London or New York or Hollywood, you kind of never see your places on screen. Although there's the Young Offenders now, so that's on television. <laughs> And that's all in Cork, and it's like, ah, that's the fucking fish shop, and that's the work. It's a kind of cool noise, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. I should yeah, have Oh, sorry. No, I'm just going to say it means, it means more to unrepresented places, rather than, of course, New York and London and all of these things that have... Absolutely. I was saying I should write a poem about all the pubs in Cork. Um, going to be a long, a long poem. I know. Or like a bunch of them. Not after lockdown. I, I, can, I can do a verse or two for you. Yeah. Hmm. When, I was a, when I was working in the Abbey Tavern, I wanted to write a poem about all the different um, like clients, you know, mm -hmm. just like people. So when I was bored, I would compose a good few lines about... Um, how people relate in the pub and how things work. I still think that would be a great, long, epic poem. <laughs> uh, mm, it's kind of a bit like work. Ulysses or something, isn't it? That, that tour <laughs> the around the, A bit like Ulysses and that idea yes. of touring around a city in Ireland. Ah, uh, yes. Me meeting all the characters. Having a lot what of references. What, what do you call people from Cork? Corkonians. Corkers. Langers. Corkonians. Yeah. Corkonians, yeah. <laughs> Counterparts of Dubliners. Mm. But uh, 
It's your turn, John. Yes. I'm going to read a poem from Tony Hoagland, who I like and have kind of discovered in the last few years. And he's one of, written one of my favorite poems that I read in the last year or two called Personal. But I don't know which poem I'm going to read from this now. I'm going to pick a random one from this book, yeah, which has the wonderful title of What Narcissism Means to Me. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to go with the first one that's opened up and it's called Two Trains. Then there was that song called Two Trains Running, a Mississippi blues they play on late night radio. That program after midnight called FM in the AM. Well, I always thought about it was about trains. Then somebody told me it was about what a man and woman do under the covers of their bed, moving back and forth like slow pistons in a shiny black locomotive. The rods and valves <laughs> trying to stay coordinated long enough that they will get to the station at the same time. And one of the trains goes out of sights into the mountain tunnel. And then and when they break back into the light, the other train is somehow pulled ahead. The two trains running like that, side by side, first one and then the other, and the fierce white bursts of smoke puffing from their sacks into a sky so sharp and blue you want to die. Then for a long time I thought the song was about sex. But then Mac told me all train songs are really about Jesus, about how the second train is shadowing the first, so he walks in your footsteps and he watches you from behind. He's running with you. He's your brakeman and your engineer, your coolant and your coal, and he will catch you when you fall. And when you stall, he will push you through the darkest mountain valley up the steepest hill. And the rough chuff-chuff of his fingers on the washboard and the harmonica woo-woo in the long soul cry by which he pulls you through the bloody tunnel of the world. Then I thought the two trains song was a gospel song. Then I quit my job in Santa Fe and Sharon drove her spike heel through my heart and I got 12 years older and Dean moved away. And now I think the song might be about goodbyes because we are not even in the same time zone or moving at the same speed or perhaps even headed towards the same destination. For God's sakes, we're not even trains. What grief it is to love some people like your own blood and then see them simply disappear, to feel time bearing us away one boxcar at a time. And sometimes sitting in my chair, I can feel the absence stretching out in all directions, like the deaf defoliated silence just after a train has thundered past the platform, just before the mindless birds begin to chirp again and the wildflowers that grow beside the tracks wobble wildly on their little stems, then gradually go still and stand. Motherless and vertical in the middle of everything. That's the end of the poem. Hmm. Wow. It was interesting, wasn't it? I really nice. liked it. Yeah. Yeah. I got I got embarrassed at first because I was like, shit, I had no idea this was going to be so bluntly about sex. And then it took kind of <laughs> a hard right turn. 
into like religion. Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. And it's like, oh shit, this is going. What's coming next? I no, it's nice. I, I I was thinking as as you kind of were smiling through the first bit there. I was thinking it's this is so such a nice uh, format we have here of reading a poem for the first time. I don't think anyone else does that. Just like surprise mm. for the reader as well. Um, and reminded me. I don't know if I've told you, John, about this reading I did. <laughs> um, Elisa, where were we? Uh, I, which one? What? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, the Ginsburg one. Oh my god, oh, we were in Cove? We were by the sea is what I know. I don't know the, the area there. Yeah. But Cove, Cove is a, to a town by the sea, yeah. Cove. yeah. So we were right by the sea. Yeah, in a small park there, and um, Elisa's friend was doing a project about censorship, and Bad she was books. doing uh, yeah. pu public readings of uh, was it public readings of censored stuff or just um, just filthy stuff? Both. <laughs> both. They often coincide, so, but yeah. Um. So she asked me if I if I wanted to be part of the project. And it was just the three of us in a public park with children around. Not close, but around. <laughs> I feel like I know where this is going, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I said, I will read whatever you give me. I don't care. And I read a poem I hadn't, I hadn't read before by Ginsberg. I don't know if you know it. Uh, it's, I'm pretty sure it's called Yes Master. Yes Master. Please, master. Uh, yeah. get more... You can you can tell you can tell by the title even if you haven't read it. A bit a bit of S and M is it? A lot of it. It is. Yes, it, it's it's filthy, and I, I I'm standing on like I don't know like a makeshift pedestal. I'm standing on something. Was it a box or whatever? Yeah. Uh, you know, at the park with a book in my hand and reading it out loud. You know, like. Not muttering or anything, just like, you know, and it's like, fuck me, master, and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then there were some, some, some children lost their ball and it was coming towards me and I'm just like reading it. <laughs> and, you know, the, the children are running after the ball and then there was like one of the mothers or their mother or whatever, that just like coming after them and I'm just reading and I, I didn't stop and we have a video recording of that that I hope never sees the light of day. <laughs> Elisa, did you give him the poem? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and did you know what it was about? Of course. <laughs> oh, you're Behind yeah. that sweet smile you were cruel and sadistic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I actually am and I love uh, Embarrassing people <laughs> and physicals. It, it was a fun experience. I, <laughs> Sounds kind of horrifying. I, I, I stuck with it. I don't. It's a nice memory. Yeah, I was thinking of the last last week's uh, meeting we had, and we chatted for yep. the first time. I made a whole introduction about how cool poet Peter Orlovsky was and how yeah. well acclaimed and how praised by like very important poets and then the first poem I read was like three lines about 
like <laughs> him masturbating on a cat. <laughs> That's my first reading. I didn't hear that three lines about what? Um, about him uh, like uh, pleasuring himself on and with his cat around. With his cat. Yeah, it yes. was very anticlimactic because it was the first time I opened the book of poetry. But he's no, it like, was it was climactic for him. <laughs> very anticlimactic for like my intellectual introduction to Orlovsky. <laughs> like, <laughs> very embarrassing, but yeah. it's kind of uh, funny too. That was karma getting its revenge on you for Platon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um but i like this surprise effect of like reading something and being like oh jesus yeah i definitely got a little uh shiver of fear up my spine even before i started because you don't know if this one's going to be good yeah then it gets very sexual and i was like oh this could get embarrassing but actually it turned out to be quite a good poem i thought except You, you know the way poems tend to end on a climax or something that sort of blows you away a bit. Mm. And I felt that this one, that that kind of didn't happen. Or I think he tried, but it sort of failed. Do you know yeah. the thing about wildflowers that gradually go still and stand motherless and vertical in the middle of everything? I feel like that doesn't have the kind of impact that he wants it to have. Do you know what I mean? No, I don't. I think the 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 few lines before the end were the more kind of impactful ones for me. When he is talking about, "Oh, you, Jesus is always with you," and mm-hmm. the, I don't remember the exact lines, but he's like the machinist and the. He's always... Um, I feel like the whole poem is quite impactful. And I think it's meant to end in a kind of a, a, a sort of anticlimax where it's a moment of silence and stillness. Mm. But I just feel like that final line wasn't as strong as the rest of it. And that's the only, right. only bit I felt a bit disappointed by. Mm. But he's a really cool poet. Uh, he's an American guy. Well, he died. he died three or four years ago. But um, he uses like all pop culture references and oh. um, just the language of everyday. He loves like flat screen TVs and his poems and things like that. And I really mm-hmm. like that because I think a lot of people have the impression, and I had the impression from school, that poetry was something old guys wrote in the 16th century and it has kind of <laughs> nothing to do with now or no relevancy to your life, you know. So that uh, I think I think a lot of people have that, especially people who their main experience of poet uh, poetry is from school, yeah, and then they don't engage with it afterwards because in school you're not really going to read contemporary poets, mm. um, and unless you have uh, maybe you take a poetry course in uh, university or something like that, or just out of your own interest to check out what poetry is like now. I think people are stuck with some old ideas of what poetry used to be like a century ago, at least. And I think that's kind of the tragedy of it because they never mm. get past that idea then because they just think poetry is something that has no relevance to me 
and I would I wouldn't even understand it and I wouldn't get anything from it. And so I like guys like this because anybody could relate to it. And I wish yeah. more people that were like modern and more accessible poets were included in school so people could um see that yeah. it's not all it's not all about daffodils. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, if you're going to have, you know, in your basic education of, you know, the children, uh, art and poetry, then you should also, like, I understand the perspective of looking back to see how it has evolved, but also where are we now? Because mm -hmm. if you stop your poetry education at the 1900s, then you don't know what poetry is like in the world you actually live in. And you don't even know, and... excuse me, that there is poetry in your world and that uh, mm. the poetry is something you can relate to and it's not, you know, it's not something arcane and kind of something that, you know, you can't apply to your own life or whatever. I have an mm. anecdote uh, for next week. I'm teaching okay. poetry. So nice. I'm teaching uh, for John this course in UCC of like introduction to literature, and the we have like a different genre every week. So we have right. drama, and now it's poetry, and like the poems to read are something on the line of like Wordsworth and Blake, and then there's this huge time jump to an anthology of like. Um, Oh, <laughs> the the new Irish poets. I think it's called very recent. Um, not only Irish, but you know, also foreigners like I don't know lived in Ireland and mm -hmm. became Irish or whatever. Uh, very multicultural. And I I'm like blushing in advance because these poems are uh, one is about um, a girl losing her virginity and. <laughs> oh. Why are you blushing? Because it's first years. <laughs> uh, and they're going to be blushing because, you know. Um, and then one about uh, English not being your first language. And hmm. I don't know. I was halfway thinking, oh, I'm just going to do William Blake because I love Blake. <laughs> um, and like skip the new Irish poets. <laughs> but I mean, no. it's, uh, it's good that they, they have that kind of reference of, you know, what what's going on in Ireland and how Irish or non-Irish are these, you know, new Irish poets mm -hmm. and stuff like that. No, definitely teach the new Irish poets. Yeah, I mean, by the time you're first year in college these days, You've got past that whole... Um, mm -hmm. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. well... Well, I think <laughs> most of them. Yeah. Have you heard the music they're listening to? <laughs> God damn kids but... these days. <laughs> they're not going to blush <laughs> from a kids. poem about losing a virginity. <laughs> I feel like they're 10. We'll see. <laughs> I think this is more karma avenging you uh, for Platon. Mm -hmm. Again. <laughs> Yes. I'll just be punished forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Karma will not be satisfied until you're truly, truly humiliated. <laughs> get it, get it over with. Start the course only about sex poetry and yeah. Just to be accept. fair, I talked about Please Master uh, two years ago, 
with first years nice. because we were <laughs> I had did you show the video no <laughs> no but we had like a bunch of poets among which Allen Ginsberg and I was like I just did an hour and a half on Ginsberg instead of like <laughs> 50 minutes mm. yeah, on everybody yeah, of course and so it was like because like this teacher was uh fired in the states like five years ago from for like oh you told me about that reading please master or like a student asking him about please master and him discussing it in class and like some mother got wind of this and got him fired so i was like it's really important that you don't yes, some states are still oh my god yeah well the culture wars are kind of constantly playing out there as well yeah I will start with uh, the poem uh, John sent me, which is on the Poetry Foundation website. It's called Poetry is a Sickness by Ed Bock Lee. And you haven't read this before now, have you? I have not. No. Good. Okay. Hmm. John went straight for the meta on the <laughs> sending. All right. You write not what you want, but what flaws flower from rust. You want to write about the universe, how the stars are really tiny, palpitating ancestor hearts watching over us. And instead what you get on the page is that car crash on 4th and Broadway. The wails of the girlfriend or widow, her long lamentation so sensuous in terrible harmony with sirens in the distance. Poetry is a sickness. You want to write about adoration, the glistening sweat on your honey's chest in which you've tasted the sun's caress. And instead what you get is a poem about the first of four times your mother and father split up. Want to write about the perfection of God and end up with just another story of a uniquely lonely childhood. If I had a dime for every happy poem I wrote, I'd be dead. Want to write about the war, oppression, injustice. And look here, see what got left behind when all the sand and dust cleared is a puke green carpet in the Harbor Lights, Salvation Army Treatment Center. A skinny native girl, no older than 17, braids the reddish hair of her little four or five-year-old Down syndrome daughter. Outside, no blinking stars, no holy kisses approach, only a vague antiseptic odor and Christian crest on the wall staring back at you. I didn't say all this to that dude who sent me his poems from prison. You want everyone to feel empowered, you want them to believe there is beauty locked in amber inside each of us, and you chip away at that shit one word at a time. You stampede with verbs. You stampede with verbs, nouns, and scalpel adjectives, middle finger your literalist boss, blow grocery cash on library fines, sprain your left knee loading pallets all day for labor ready. You live in an attic for nine years, you go bankrupt, you smoke too much, drink too much, alienate family and friends, 
say yes, poetry is a sickness, but fuck it. Do it long enough and I promise, like an anti-superhero, your secret power will become loss. Loss like only old people must know, when the last red maple on the block goes and the drizzle turns to snow. Maybe the best poem is always the one you shouldn't have written. The gazel that bleeds your index finger or caused your sister to reject your calls for a year. The sonnet that made the woman you loved fear, that slam poem you're still paying for, the trilat that smiled to violate you through, the, through both ears. But poet, sucker, fool, it's your job to find meaning in all this because you are delusional enough to believe that yes, poetry is a sickness, but somehow if you just scrape through enough beauty and truth to recall yes, yes, that Broadway car crash was fucked up, but the way the rain fell to wash away the blood not 10 minutes after the ambulance left was gorgeous. Or how maybe your mother and father would sometimes scream, but also wrapped never-before-seen never tropical food for one another every Christmas Eve. How in the morning before opting out I watched that tiny native girl fumbling to braid her own and now snoring mother's long black hair together in a single corn row. If I can just always squiggle down like this, even half as much as what I'd otherwise need to forget, maybe these scales ready. Maybe these scales ready will one day tip to find each flaw that made us exquisite. Wow, that was climactic. Yes, that is a good climactic line at the end, didn't it? That, yeah. that had a proper arc, it rose and oh, it's, it's really, really good. I'm glad I read it. Me too. Um, yeah. It's it's interesting it, always when uh, you know there's that old kind of trope that uh, a writer's first book is about writing because they they are so focused on that uh, and the meta approach is always tricky to do. I think some people just get caught up in their own uh, bubble, uh, but this was not. You know, like this was the opposite. Mm -hmm. This really captured something, and I, I'm curious to know, you know, what period this is from, how old this uh, poet was when uh, he wrote it. It's interesting. Like, at what stage do you write this kind of poetry? Like, are you established? Are you just starting out? I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I'd say he's established because he says that dude. I don't tell this to that dude who sends me poems from prison, which means he must yeah, be established yeah, yeah. so people know his name. Yeah. So I, need to, um, I think he's a yeah, bit older. Yeah, I suppose that. And it seems like it's it's a, a poem to young poets, a bit like Rilke's letters, you know. Uh, it's not really just him talking to himself. He's kind of talking to other people who write poems and saying it's kind of horrible but there's the odd beautiful moment and that's what you get. It's that yeah, line about, it? sorry, that line about uh, you will have a superpower and its name will be loss, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah. now I, it made me think about so many things, uh, connections all, all over the place. I, 
but yeah, it does. It, it is aimed at kind of like he's talk. He's writing about himself and his experience, and also kind of relating it to uh, uh, younger, newer poets, where some people who have have been trying to write poetry will understand what he's talking about. That like. He, even at that stage, you know that it's a it's a hard process and a, it can be painful and whatever. And I like the bit uh, I, I can't quote it exactly, but it was about you know. Uh, I love the line: "If I did dying for every happy poem I wrote, I'd be dead." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I like the bit where. Uh, he says, yes, that Broadway car crash was fucked up, but the way the rain fell and washed away the blood not 10 minutes after the ambulance left was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And it does like capture a, a bit of how poetry works in a way where when, when, when we talk about poetry that is about truth and uh, beauty, that he presents it a little bit as a, a bit perverse in a way because you know like all oh, the rain that's washing away the blood from the car crash is gorgeous so that seems a bit you know you're focusing on the rain but mm. it explains of how a poetry can think of can notice different things and then bring them all together and it's kind of about seeing beauty where you're not supposed to see any beauty. Yeah, that's too, that. I think. Were you about to say something there, Elisa? I'm sorry I interrupted you. Um, no, it's okay. I think I was, yeah, I think I was saying something similar, like, um, that uh, it seems a, a poem about poetry to me <laughs> more than uh, about himself or about writing or about anything. It's just that you know, what we think about when we think about just poetry or uh, the whole, yeah, what is it to see beauty? What is it to uh, think about things in different ways? And kind of a, a very positive, redemptive, uh, hopeful view of, of it. <laughs> I wouldn't say, well, I mean, I think it comes a bit positive and redemptive, but it also kind of lists like, he wrote a poem once that caused his sister not to talk to him for a year. Yeah. Do you know <laughs> yeah, that, that like there's a price to be paid? And I don't know if it's about the process being hard. I think it's more about just the life of a poet being hard. Do you know, he's talking about being mm. fucking bankrupt and smoking too much and drinking too much and being isolated. Yeah. That it's I was like, thinking about the last part, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I, it does get to like you have these moments of beauty in the end and maybe it's worth it. But to me, my, my favorite thing, I think, is the sentiment from the beginning, where if you also relate it to what we were talking a bit earlier about what people perceive as poetry mm -hmm. based on older ideas, where he says, you know, like you start to write a poem about how like the grace of God or whatever, 
and he's juxtaposing ideas of you know like poetries about beauty and about mm. you know my gorgeous lover and how we are perfect together or how god is you know uh, amazing and mm. blah 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 but actually you end up writing about something else and yeah. that process it's you know like That's every poet will tell you that they often they cannot uh, choose what they write about so consciously. It's not like, I'm going to write a poem about uh, love. No, it's it's deeper than that. And uh, just to close this kind of line of thought, um, Leonard Cohen once answered the question by saying, uh, if I knew where the good songs came from, I would go there more often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. There's something about what poetry should be about or what you think it's supposed to be about. And it goes back to that thing of learning in school. It's all these highfalutin kind of, you know, ideals. And then you find the poetry you write about is the tangled kind of mess inside of you that seems much more petty or individual or small. But that, like, that that smallness can kind of have something universal and beautiful within it, I guess, if you write about it in the right way, maybe. Yeah, I think we've we've shifted uh, definitely in that direction in the last, I don't know, let's say 50 years or more, where if you set out to write a poem about something grand, it doesn't work anymore. But if you write a poem about uh, a radiator, that can work a lot better because it allows you to to explore something new, develop a voice that we haven't read before. And, every, you know? and everybody has a radiator. Exactly. <laughs> and every, uh, hopefully, not, hopefully, yeah. Ask the ask the people in Texas now. Yeah, that's true. That's tragic. That's what I mean, that poetry has evolved to this thing where you have to write about things that were not considered poetry uh, decades ago and bring your own perspective into it. You kind of have to. You have to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you end up sounding like everyone else did. A century ago and no one wants to read that because we that exists already so po po new, new poets have to bring something new by necessity i think yeah so you kind of have to you kind of have to write about what comes naturally and not about what you think a good poem should be like mm -hmm. you know you set out to write something but that's not what actually works what actually works is just stop thinking and what does what comes out of you spontaneously will be the thing that you actually really care about and that's what good poetry is and that's what he's saying in the poem too i think exactly yeah